Good morning. Please go ahead and open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 26. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, kids, you can turn to page 104. This morning we'll be looking at chapters 26 and 27 of Leviticus. To be a person living in the modern world is to be faced with choices. And even if you wanted to, you can't evade these choices. This is actually a a big blessing for many of us. So you could choose to, to move your family to where the jobs are. And you can provide for your family in a way that perhaps prior generations weren't as able to relocate. You can choose your profession. You don't just have to become a blacksmith because your dad was. You can choose your faith. Just because you were you know, born in Roman Catholic Italy in the 1500s doesn't mean you're, you're destined to stay there, right? You can choose to follow Christ and the way he's revealed himself in the scriptures. There are lots of good things about living in this age of choice. But as we also know, there are bad things. We can so worship choice that we make that freedom to choose an idol. Indeed, one of the great moral tragedies of our day is couched in terms of of choice, a right to choose to end the life of your unborn child. But no matter what, we're going to have to choose. We have to make choices to live this way or that way, to go to this school or that school, to organize our families in a way that complies with God's word or in a way that complies with our own wisdom. We must choose. And as we come to the end of the Leviticus this morning, I believe that God is holding out for us a choice. A choice as to whether we will live lives of holiness or unrepentance. Whether we will walk in God's ways or our own ways. So this morning, again, we're looking at these last two chapters of, 20, of, of Leviticus, chapters 26 and 27. And in, the, in this chapter 26 especially, we see this choice laid out in kind of a bare way, very explicitly. Choose God's way, the way of blessing, or choose your own way, the way that leads to cursing. It helps to understand these chapters as being part of a, a pattern in the Bible. So especially here in the Old Testament, we often see a covenant laid out, and then we see the blessings and the curses of those covenant of that, of that covenant coming at the end as kind of the concluding part of the contract, if you will. So a covenant document will often end with blessings and curses. And so we see kind of a, a micro version of that contained here in the book of Leviticus, where this, this covenant is laid out. If you, if you approach me in this way, you can enjoy my presence. If you don't, I'll withdraw my presence. That's kind of the, the, the covenant we see here in Leviticus. And that covenant is kind of nested within this broader covenant of the first five books of the Old Testament. So Deuteronomy is in large part what we see here in Leviticus 26 expanded. We see the covenant blessings and curses applied to Israel as the Pentateuch comes to an end. So here in this, this chapter, we'll be talking about covenant blessings for those who keep the covenant and covenant curses for those who don't. Here, the whole book of Leviticus is kind of applied to Israel going forward. To understand these covenant blessings and curses, we need to kind of remember all that we've looked at in Leviticus to this point. We've seen in this book that the Lord desired that his people should dwell in his presence And so he created the tabernacle. He he designed it and he gave Israel the plan so that they could build it. And the tabernacle was meant to be a kind of echo of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was that place where God dwelled with his people on earth. But because of rebellion against him, the God's people were kicked out of the garden. And the cherubim was placed at the eastern gate of Eden. We see that because of God's holiness, sinful people couldn't dwell with him. But in the tabernacle, that's sort of reversed. So once the tabernacle is built at the end of Exodus, God's glory descends and fills the tabernacle. It's as if Eden has reappeared on earth. 
Once again, there's a place on earth where human beings can have fellowship with God. If you remember back to that first sermon we preached the first of the year, we said that tabernacle was built and God dwelled there, but there was this problem presented at the end of Exodus, that Moses couldn't go into the tabernacle because God's glory dwelled there. You could say God's dwelling place falls on earth, but it wasn't yet a tent of meeting. Israel couldn't go in. And so as much as the tabernacle symbolizes God's presence, it's also a reminder of the distance between God and man. At the end of Exodus 40, it's kind of like Genesis 4. Cain and Abel have been kicked out of the garden, but they're still bringing their sacrifices there to the, maybe the, the eastern gate of Eden, but they can't get in. Well, Leviticus is God laying out the way that Israel can get in. It's making the tabernacle go from just a dwelling place of God to the meeting place of God and his people. But it does hold out this reminder every time Israel comes that sin and death separate people from God. Sin and death separate people from God's holy presence. So the tabernacle with its holy place and its, um, its outer court kind of are these symbols of these, of these grades of holiness and showing that to be holy, people must be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. The unclean cannot come into contact with God's holiness and there must be sacrifice made. There must be cleansing and purification through the blood of the sacrifices. So God calls sinful people to come to him through the tabernacle sacrifices, but he also is warning people. He's warning the, the unrepentantly profane, don't come near. If you will not repent, if you will not submit and trust in the sacrifices that God has ordained, there's no hope for you. If you try to come near to God in an impure way, the same thing will happen to you that happened to Nadab and Abihu. You'll be struck down. So the tabernacle has both of these things going on. It's a, it's a sign of God's gracious presence, and it's a warning to those who are unrepentant. Well, this is not to say that Leviticus leaves God's people paralyzed in that kind of ambiguous state. No, Leviticus is a call to pursue God's holy presence and to enjoy it. As we saw last week, the book has repeated calls to God's people to be holy as God is holy. But the Lord's commands to come to him are accompanied by warnings for those who resist his commands. In the final chapters, as we said, these warnings are extended into the future. These last, this last chapter is kind of, or chapter 26 is kind of a prophecy of what's to come. To those who pursue holiness, the Lord promises to give more of himself. But if God's people should forsake his ways, the Lord assures them that they will not enjoy the blessings of his presence. He will give them over to the consequences of sin and death. And instead of enjoying the, the blessing of God's presence, they will only encounter God in judgment. The overarching point here, again, is that there's no middle ground with God. You're either devoted to God and pursuing holiness, or you're opposed to him and living in stubborn unrepentance. And so the book of, of Leviticus holds out to us two ways to live. Will you choose the path of life or death? Holiness or unrepentance. This morning we're going to look at three principles in these last two chapters. First, holiness leads to increasing enjoyment of God's holiness. Holiness leads to increasing enjoyment of God's holiness. Second, unrepentance leads to increasing experiences of God's judgment. Unrepentance leads to increasing experiences of God's judgment. And third, there are only two ways to live, in holiness or unrepentance. So since everyone's furiously writing those down, I'll say them one more time. Holiness leads to increasing enjoyment of God's holiness. Unrepentance leads to increasing experiences of God's judgment and there are only two ways to live, in holiness or unrepentance. 
There are some questions for discussion on the back table. If you want to grab them as you leave, it'll have the outline as well as some reflection questions. And then the children's listening guide is on the other side of that sheet. We see this first principle that holiness leads to increasing enjoyment of God's holiness in the, in the blessings portion of these blessings and curses. So that's chapter 26, verses 1 through 13. Let's go ahead and read the first part of chapter 26 together. The Lord says, You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or a pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. This is God's word. To understand our first point, that holiness leads to increasing enjoyment of God's holiness, we need to once again remember what holiness means. I want to go back to those two definitions we used last week. Holiness means belonging to God, and holiness means godliness. And both of these, I think, are at play here. First, look at the way that the people here in these verses belong to God. They belong to God because God redeemed them. That's what the Lord reminds them of in verse 13. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He says he broke the bars of their yoke of slavery. He freed them from serving Pharaoh, not so that they could be completely independent free agents. He broke the bars of their service to Pharaoh so they could come out into the wilderness and serve him. Last week after the sermon, both Brother Jimmy and Brother Glenn remarked on how we see the repeated phrase, I am the Lord and I am the Lord your God throughout chapters 17 through 25. And it seems that that phrase, those two phrases, are just abbreviated versions of this longer phrase, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They're just miniature kind of punctuation marks to remind Israel over and over again, you are mine. You have been bought with a price. So they're reminders of redemption. God delivered Israel from serving Pharaoh so they could belong to him. They could be holy and serve him. So that's where holiness begins. The holiness that leads to increasing enjoyment of God's holiness begins with God's saving work. God saved us to enjoy him. God saved us to grow in our enjoyment of him. We belong to God because he's redeemed us from sin and death. We can see how this was true in Israel's case. We can read the Exodus story and see how God redeemed them and made them his own. But we also know it's true of every Christian. To be a Christian is to be bought with the price of Christ's own life. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians twice, you were bought with a price. (coughs) We are saved through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ redeemed us from sin and death so that we could be his treasured possession. We belong to God. Do you belong to God? 
You need to see that belonging to God doesn't mean you have some positive feelings about Jesus. Belonging to God isn't something that is true of you just because you're born into the right family or in the right country or in the right ethnicity. To belong to God begins with understanding that in your natural state, you're a slave to sin and death. We're all born loving ourselves and failing to offer God the worship he deserves. And so to belong to God means that you understand your sinfulness and that it deserves death. And you rejoice in the way that Jesus paid for your sin when he died on the cross. To belong to God means that you rejoice to be called a child of God and a servant of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Are you one of God's holy ones because of the work of Jesus? Do you belong to God? If you say, no, I don't, then the the message for you is to repent and believe in Christ. If you repent and believe in Christ, you're adopted into God's family. You belong to God. You have all the blessings of a child of God. We see our two definitions of holiness, belonging to God and godliness, kind of merged together in this passage with its emphasis on worship. God's holy people pursue holiness in worship. As we worship God, we we recognize that we belong to him and we pursue being like him. Those who belong to God pursue godliness through worshiping God. In verse 1, the Lord prohibits false worship. He prohibits making idols and bowing down to them because I am the Lord your God, it says at the end of verse 1. So God's people belong to him and therefore we should not pledge our allegiance to any demon or false gods. You could say this is looking at worship negatively, what we should not do in worship. Verse 2 puts it positively. Verse 2 says, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. In this covenant that God made with his people, the Sabbath day was the day of holiness. It was a day set apart for Israel to rest from their normal work and to come into God's holy presence. The Sabbath was also inextricably bound up with reverencing God's sanctuary, as he puts it. To reverence God's sanctuary meant that they were to participate in the tabernacle worship God had ordained. They were to come to the tabernacle with their sacrifices. They were to trust that as the animals were slaughtered and the blood was poured out on the altar, that their sins were atoned for. They were to trust that through these sacrifices, they could have fellowship with their holy God. All of that is bound up in reverencing God's sanctuary. They were also to be taught there by the priests. One of the main functions of the priests was to teach God's people. If you go by the numbers, it was probably true that many more of the priests were involved in the teaching ministry than could ever have been involved in the the actual temple service or the tabernacle service. So So to reverence God's sanctuary was to come ready to learn from God, ready to learn through God's priest who he is and what he commanded his people to do. So the blessings are pronounced on God's redeemed people as they worship him and obey him, as they pursue godliness. The worship of God's holy people leads to godliness, to walking in God's ways. And that's, that's what verse 3 highlights. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments, then all these blessings are yours. So these blessings that God pronounces in Leviticus 26 are the blessings for the people God redeemed. They're the blessings pronounced on those people who respond to God's redeeming work by turning away from their false gods, repenting of their sins, and worshiping him. They are the blessings for God's people, God's holy people, who abide in holiness, who pursue holiness. When we look at these blessings and we read through the list of them, we are rightly amazed. God promises plentiful food, crops and trees that produce abundant fruit. I love the pithy phrase of verse 10, you shall eat old store 
long kept. In this blessed world that God describes here, you never run out of food. You have to kind of eat up the old food in the pantry to make room for the new food. What an amazing promise this was to a people who are wandering through the wilderness, picking up bread off the ground. The Lord promises his people peace from their enemies. He even promises to get rid of the wild beasts. He says that they'll overcome their enemies in battle even when they're vastly outnumbered by multiples of ten. This is a preview of how God will fight for them when they enter the land of Canaan. Now, as we read these blessings, we can easily sort of fixate on the physical nature of them and think, well, where is my prosperity like that? But I think we will be helped if we notice that these spirit or physical blessings are not the only blessings here. The climax of these blessings, the climax of what God is promising, are spiritual blessings. Look at verses 11 and 12. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. It might sound funny to hear God say, my soul will not abhor you. It doesn't seem very positive, but it is very positive when you read in verse 26 that he promises, my soul will abhor you if you don't repent. My point in saying this is, these are spiritual blessings. These are promises of of love and presence. The Lord promises that he will dwell with his people. He even promises here to walk among his people which is an echo of what God did in the garden with Adam and Eve. He walked freely in the garden with Adam and Eve. The presence of God that's described here seems to be something even greater than what Israel enjoyed in the tabernacle. That God's presence has broken the bounds of the most holy place and it's extended to all the land. The big payoff here is that God will love his people and they will belong to him. He will be their God. God's people pursue holiness, and as they do so, they will enjoy increasing measures of God's presence. Worshiping in God's holy presence, then, leads to a greater enjoyment of God's holy presence. It builds on itself. As you think about Leviticus, you hopefully remember we've seen that God's presence cannot tolerate any death or impurity. So all the cleanness laws that we read about, they were all intended to help people realize how they needed to purify themselves in order to approach the tabernacle. And I think that's the best way to understand the physical blessing that's described in these passages. The physical blessings flow from the presence of the holy God among his holy people in his holy land. That's why it was so important for the Israelites to purify the land of of the idol-worshiping Canaanites. The reason for the prosperity of the people in the land is because God is there with them. The presence of God expels anything that stinks of death or impurity. If God dwells in the land, it must be fruitful. If God dwells among the people, they must be fruitful. C.S. Lewis provides a really helpful picture of this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The story opens with Narnia under the white witch's curse. Remember in Narnia, when Lucy arrives, it's always winter, but never Christmas. But as Aslan is on the move, returning to Narnia, what's one of the first things the children see as they, they go on their journey with the beavers? They meet Father Christmas, and he comes giving them gifts. Before long, they start to notice the the snow is melting. And by the end of the story, it's in full bloom and blossom and the birds are singing. But this change happens because Aslan has arrived back in Narnia. It's similar for the promised land where God dwells. The picture we're given here in Leviticus is not of the promised land really as Israel ever enjoyed it. There's elements that are true. We see God fighting for his people, But then we see them sin at Ai and they fall. But we see here something even better. We see a vision of paradise. A place where God walks among his people. 
Just the way that God does in the new heavens and the new earth where there's, there's no need for, for lights because God's presence is the light. God is holding out a promise here to his people of complete restoration. Restoring everything that man lost in our sin in Adam. See, holiness leads to increasing enjoyment of God's holiness. Again, to use Lewis again, what's his picture of the very, the very culmination? It's further up and farther in. Increased enjoyment of God's holiness. The promise here is that the Lord gives himself to his people. That's the big headline of these blessings. In the case of the Levitical covenant, these blessings are going to be seen in, in physical ways in the, in the land of Canaan. Understanding this passage then, I think, helps us to understand why the psalmist can speak of the blessing of God's presence in the way he does. Listen to Psalm 65, verses 1 through 4. David says, Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. This is the blessing God promises to his people. Forgiven sinners enjoying the goodness of God's presence. Those who forsake false gods worship him and they are satisfied by his goodness. It is good to dwell in the house of the Lord. Well, this is all good and well for these people who lived in the days of Leviticus, but we might ask, does it have anything to do with us? Again, we, we claim to know Christ and to have God's presence, but do we experience this kind of tangible expression of, of heaven on earth? We can recognize some ways that we're not part of this Levitical covenant, right? We, we don't go to a tabernacle to enjoy God's presence or a temple in Jerusalem. Despite what we often say about Texas, we don't live in the promised land yet. But these promises of God do point to something real for Christians. Even though the, the covenant, as it was mediated by Moses, has passed away, we have a new mediator, Jesus Christ the righteous. He has come as the mediator of a new and better covenant. And the ultimate end is the same. We are promised life with God. We are promised an increasing enjoyment of our holy God as we pursue holiness. And we see in the New Testament that the blood of Jesus purifies sinners in a way that the blood of bulls and goats cannot. The blood of Jesus purifies our conscience. God has poured out his spirit on us so that we can pursue holiness in a way that the old covenant people could not. The promises of Leviticus are fulfilled and surpassed in Christ. And for us too, holiness leads to an increasing enjoyment of God's holiness. So the promise for us is in some ways largely the same, but the way that we pursue holiness has changed. The focus has shifted away from the repeated sacrifices of bulls and goats at the tabernacle towards Jesus. We don't come to the tent in the wilderness, we come to Christ. He is the Son of God who took on flesh and tabernacled among us, as we could translate John 1.14. We are called to come and find rest for our souls and submit ourselves to God through Jesus Christ. God gives himself to us in Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. And he is also the perfect sacrifice whose blood once and for all secures our place in God's presence. Right? Because of Jesus, we can come boldly to God's throne of grace, into the very holy of holies itself. So how do we pursue this holy life, this holy life that leads to increasing enjoyment of God's holiness? We pursue, we pursue it by growing in faith in Christ in obedience to Christ. As we grow in holiness, as we grow in faith in Christ and obedience to Christ, it leads to a greater enjoyment of God's holiness. When we say God's holiness, we could be speaking of God's very life, of God's life-giving nature. 
The Apostle Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4. He says that the Holy Spirit gives life and righteousness in a way that the tablets of stone of Moses' covenant could not. Listen to how he describes the way that Christians can know God in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That phrase, unveiled face, in, in 2 Corinthians 3, is Paul's way of referring to faith in Jesus Christ as contrasted to trying to do the works of the law. And notice that he says that we behold the glory of the Lord, and as we do so, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. We're transformed. We experience a greater enjoyment of God's holiness as we behold God. Well, you might ask, well, how do I see the glory of the Lord? A few verses later in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says... For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to know the joy of the presence of God? Look upon the face of Jesus Christ. Know Christ. We pursue holiness by pursuing faith in Christ, by growing in our faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Christ. That's the great blessing that God calls us and invites us to pursue in knowing him, to know more of him in increasing measure. The gift of the blessings in Leviticus 26 is the blessing of the Lord's presence. That gift is ultimately realized in Christ. All of the physical blessings that he promised to them flow from that chief blessing. And Christ holds out to us a similar hope, not in this world, but in the world to come, that we will dwell in God's presence and death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Life with God will be a life of increasingly enjoying God's holiness. So one way we grow in holiness is by looking forward to that day. Fix your eyes on the day when you will enjoy the fullness of God's holy life. Pursue it. But also know that the promise of God's holy life isn't only a future blessing. New life begins as we enjoy being forgiven much by God through Jesus Christ today. Do you know God's holy presence through Jesus Christ? Do you know him as your Savior? Do you know him as the one who loves you, who's gentle towards you? Have you learned Christ by walking in his ways? Have you enjoyed Christ's holiness by trusting him to provide for you, especially as you lay down your life for others? We fellowship with our holy God as we obey him and trust him. And this pursuit of holiness leads to a greater enjoyment of God's holiness. The peace and safety and bounty that God describes for Israel in Leviticus 26 are like an advertisement for the peace and provision that Jesus brings. Again, it may not be the complete absence of pain or strife that we look for in the next life, but we do know the peace today of being reconciled to God. Because of Jesus, God no longer counts us as his enemies. We are at peace with him. Again, we, we may have physical needs in this life that don't, don't get met, illnesses that don't get healed. But we know that in Christ we have a great physician and we have true spiritual food that feeds us for eternal life. We know that in Christ, in his power, we have everything we need for life and godliness. Satan would have us believe that there is something lacking in God's provision, that he's holding something good back from us. Satan would have us believe that we are alone and defeated. But our holy God proclaims the good news that we belong to him. He is our goodness. And he desires to give us more of himself 
He desires to fellowship with us as we walk in his light. So Leviticus 26 shows us how the Lord's holiness purifies and expels darkness. It purifies people from their sin. It purifies them from death. And so pursuing holiness means living in this reality. We belong to a holy God. A holy God who has nothing to do with sin and death. And so since we are one with Christ, let us take no part in the ways of darkness. Since we have been joined to Christ, we should have no reason to join ourselves to the immorality of this world. The life of holiness is a life of growing in repentance and righteousness. And as we pursue this repentance and righteousness and faith in Christ, we enjoy more of the God's holy life. We are transferred from one degree of glory to another. Holiness leads to an increasing enjoyment of God's holiness. The rest of chapter 26 reveals the curses of the covenant. The Lord reveals that unrepentance leads to increasing experiences of God's judgment. Let's just look at verses 14 through 16 to get a taste of this. God says, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all those, these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eye and makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. If you read through these curses, you see how they all correspond to the blessings. Instead of peace and and easy military victory, there's panic. Even when nobody's chasing them, you'll run. There's lack of food. There's a lack of God's life-giving presence. And as Pastor Tim led us when he prayed and talked about the the love of God here, these are not intended simply to make Israel feel bad about themselves. They're, They're loving warnings. They're tangible signs that you're going the wrong way. They are God's loving discipline to call Israel back. Again and again, God refers to these judgments as discipline. They're God disciplining his firstborn son. I hope that you can see here that the warnings here are much more than any kind of false religion that says good people get good things from God and and bad people get bad things. The warnings here are for people who continually sin and turn away from God's calls to repent. Right? God repeatedly calls them to repent and they repeatedly bow up in stubbornness and refuse to hear. They refuse to learn the lessons he's teaching them. So just for example, verses 23 through 24 of chapter 26, we read, And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. So in this passage, we we have like every two or three verses, the same thing. And if still you're not turned, and if you don't listen to these corrections, I will visit you sevenfold. Again and again, God calls them back to himself. And sadly, again and again, God's people refuse to come. And as I said, this, this takes on really the flavor of prophecy. This really outlines what's going to happen in Israel's history going forward. God helpfully identifies the problem for us. He says it's pride and hardness of heart. So in chapter 26, verse 19, he says, I will break the pride of your power. That's why God's sending these judgments on them. He's sending them to break their pride, to bring them to humility. And then in verse 41, he describes their hearts as uncircumcised. He's essentially saying that Through your rebellion, Israel, you've made yourselves just like the people of the nations who are uncircumcised. Your hearts are hard. Later in the Old Testament, Jeremiah correlates this idea of of uncircumcised heart with with ground that's hard to break up. Ground that's hard and that is not receptive to the plow. Israel's problem is they, they won't listen. They're stuck in their own ways. 
They're willfully ignorant of what God is doing in their lives and bringing these judgments upon them. And so this is what leads to an increasing experience of God's judgment. These threats, again, are essentially a prophecy of what will happen to Israel after they entered the promised land. And so we read kind of the fulfillment of this prophecy in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, that as Israel continued to, to stubbornly not repent, God eventually exiled them from the land. Let's see this uh, prophesied for us here in verses 27 and following. Chapter 26, verse 27 and following. But if, in, but if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate, While you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as of those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers. They shall rot away like them. Again, it's the polar opposite of the blessings God promised. And we see that these curses are not just physical curses. They certainly are that, but they're spiritual curses. God warns them that if they continue in in unrepentance, his soul will abhor them and he will not smell their pleasing aromas. When we first started Leviticus, we looked at how that phrase, smelling the pleasing aroma, was was used throughout the scriptures to say the offering has been accepted to God. Instead of smelling like sin... By their faithful offerings, they smelled pleasing to the Lord. Well, here the Lord says, I I won't smell those anymore. I'll refuse to receive what you offer because of your unrepentance. God promises to withdraw his loving presence from them and to only be present towards them in judgment. See, unrepentance leads to increasing experiences of God's judgment. In the final picture, Israel is exiled from the land. Only a remnant of the people remain. And of those, they suffer. God says this is a kind of forced Sabbath for the land. Because the people will not keep the Sabbath, God will make sure the Sabbaths are kept. Do you believe that your unrepentance leads you into God's judgment? Or do you think perhaps that you can sort of create safe havens of selfishness in your life? You can create those safe havens of selfishness and still enjoy fellowship with God. Or do you take God at his word that he will judge sin? In our secular age, one of the choices you kind of have on your menu of spiritual options is that maybe I'll just kind of ignore God. I can do that. I don't have to really think about him. I can just go my own way. But God's word doesn't leave that option open to you. It doesn't leave that option open to anyone. If you don't come into God's presence by way of repentance and faith in Christ, you will face him in judgment. God has made you to worship him. And one day every knee will bow to him. 
unrepentance leads to increasing experiences of God's judgment. Everyone must reckon with that reality. But what's most surprising of all in this chapter is what we find in verses 40 and 42. God says, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. Let's skip down to verse 44. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God, but I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. <clears throat> the amazing news of this passage is not the, the kind of technicolor apocalypse of God's judgment. The amazing news is God's patience. Even after all their sin, even after they spurned him again and again, he will forgive them if they repent. He will not forget the promises he made to Abraham. He'll not forget the way that he dramatically brought them out of Egypt. He'll keep his promises to his people and forgive them. Unrepentance leads to increasing experiences of God's judgment but those who repent can enjoy life with God. In this we see the holiness of God. How unlike us he is. The holiness of God is revealed here in resurrection life for sinners who repent and trust in Christ. What happens to Israel when they re repent and, and come to him is no less than a kind of resurrection it may not be quite as dramatic as we would like it, right? It's, it's fits and starts. But by God's grace, some of them return from Babylon and they rebuild the temple. It's a resurrection. God is pleased with that kind of resurrection story. And that's what God offers to us today. And the only way this forgiveness is really possible is that Jesus Christ himself undergoes the curses of the covenant. He's the one who's overcome by his enemies. He's driven outside the camp and he faces the wrath of God that sinners deserve. Jesus faced death and defeated it. And he rose again from the dead. And that's the hope of sinners. That through faith in Christ, we can have life. Faith in Christ is the way to holiness. It's through God, through, through Christ and faith in his work that sinners enjoy the holy life of God. And so that's why there are only two ways to live, holiness or unrepentance. Will you seek fellowship with the holy God by faith in his son or will you continue in hardness of heart? As strange as it seems, I think this is the point of these, the weird last chapter. So if you were a faithful Bible reader and you read chapter 27, you might wonder what in the world's going on here. We have a bunch of things about vows and the, the price for people who might pay these vows. The, the point seems to be that Israelites could make vows to God and they could pay these vows in monetary ways. And, so, and that, that price depended at, at, according to the kind of person they were. And so if a, a young man in his prime of his life offered himself to God and says, God, I vow my life to you, he would pay that vow in a, in a money way by offering money to God at the temple. And then we also find prices given for other kinds of things you could vow, like animals or lands. But then at the end of the chapter, we have things mentioned that can't be vowed. So firstborn animals, they can't be vowed to God because they already belong to God. And then there are these things that are devoted to the Lord, and they must be destroyed. When they enter the land, we'll find that Achan is executed for stealing some things that were devoted to the Lord. They were holy to God and should have been destroyed. We also find that the tithes of the land, they're called holy to the Lord. 
The point of all these things, I think, is to put the question to God's people, will you be holy or not? If you are holy, then you must live as you belong to God. If you make vows, you must pay them. You must treat things that are holy as if they are holy. You must reverence them. I think we're back to where we started at the beginning of 26. You must reverence my sanctuary and keep my Sabbath. Essentially, the question is this. Is holiness a real thing or not? Is God truly holy? Will you be holy? That question is not, are you perfect? God knows we are all sinners. This whole system, this whole holiness system of the tabernacle is for sinners. The question is, will you be holy by repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ, the Holy One of Israel? Will you be holy by renouncing your right to rule over yourself? Will you be holy by forsaking the gods and the promises that the world offers you? Will you be holy by agreeing that your sins deserve judgment? Will you be holy by resting in the payment that Jesus made for sins? In holiness, which comes by faith in Jesus, there is life, eternal life. There is the goodness and the bounty of the holy God. But in unrepentance, there is only death and destruction. Which way will you live? In holiness or unrepentance? Let's pray. O holy God, we ask you to give us a sense of of the wonder of your holiness. Give us eyes to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Give us conviction about the goodness of your holy life that we can enjoy through him so that we forsake all other lesser things and trust in him. Father, I pray for our friends who are here who don't know you. I pray for children here and teenagers who have yet to place their faith in Christ. Father, I pray you'd bring conviction that there are only two ways to live. I pray that you would soften hearts and free us all from stubbornness and unrepentance and grant us the grace to trust in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.